0: Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a
1: Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a Filmmaker and Content Creator at MQ Mental Health Research.
0: And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems and we hope to do so
1: in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we spoke to Associate Professor in Psychology at Durham University, Dr. Ben Alderson Day. Ben's research is broadly focused on mental health and neurodiversity. His current research is about felt presence, the sensation that someone is present without any sensory cues. In this conversation, we discussed presence, the research behind hallucinations and the fourth man phenomenon.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of MQ Open Mind. Craig and I are absolutely delighted today. We're joined by a really fascinating guest, uh, Dr. Ben Alderson Day. And Ben is a, an associate professor in, in psychology at Durham University. So welcome to the podcast, Ben, and thanks for
2: agreeing to do it. Oh, thank you very much for It's a real honor to be here.
0: What we tend to do in the podcast, what Craig and I try to do is try and take our, our listeners through sort of a bit of a journey. And with that journey is maybe telling a bit about your history what brings you to where you are in your career and I know a really fascinating book um we'll be talking about shortly that you've you've written and but maybe before we get on to to the book maybe Ben could you tell us a bit about your journey in terms of mental health and atypical presentations of the human condition
2: I guess for me it really started in my late teens uh and I took a level psychology actually because of a timetable clash at my uh, at my school in York and uh, I got told by certain teachers oh well I mean you maybe shouldn't be taking that because universities don't really recognize it as a proper subject uh, and uh, a lot of people take it and it suddenly turns into something that they don't think it is and instead I was I was hooked uh, and around about the same time um, I started doing some really some voluntary work initially as an RA for a local CAMS unit. So a child adolescent mental health unit there in York. Uh, so I actually learned SPSS before coming to university. Um, That's
0: just showing off. I know, I know, I know,
2: exactly. And, you know, there was a few glory years when it was still relevant. And now I'm still trying to kind of catch up with all the other things we're supposed to be able to do. But anyway, so, so, yeah, it really started there uh, with a, an interest in, particularly in uh, the more clinical side of things and Really, the, the different ways in which the mind can develop. So was, I was simultaneously interested in questions around um, autism and people like uh, Peter Hobson. I was particular. I really liked his his uh, work on intersubjectivity and autism. And then I also read R.D. Lang's divided self at a very impressionable mm-hmm. age, and thought, "Oh wow, this is you know this is the mm-hmm. sort of thing that that um, essentially." Um, psychology can do. Obviously, he wasn't a psychologist by background, Lang, but um, but really, the idea of providing a psychological account of almost some of the extremes of mental states in the mind was something that I found really captivating. So, so what uh, was your?
0: You just you mentioned R.D. Lang. Um, what, so, what was what was it struck you about R.D. Lang's interpretation or
2: viewpoint? I, I think it was just that idea that for um, states of you know madness, for want of a better word. Um, it, we don't have to think about it as this categorically separate state of being and mind. It can be something that you can make sense of from, in a way, from everyday interactions, from kind of interpersonal mm-hmm. uh, relationships, uh, and um, that there's something to be um, explained there from a psychological perspective, Is I think is what I found most interesting. Um and, you know, contrasted with perhaps an overly kind of biological approach to psychosis. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, um, you know, I've, I've probably developed a more nuanced view of some of these things since, or at least I would hope I could say that. Um, but um, but certainly that idea of kind of setting up that dialectic of um, there, there are different, there's more than uh, one way to explain these sorts of states, even very extreme states was something that I just found absolutely fascinating at the yeah. time and thought
0: that this is this is what I want to do. Yeah, no cuz I would think it's fascinating using fascinating there but there's a, so many people on, on the podcast there's always somebody who for good or for ill either inspires or challenges us and, and it's interesting how that still stays with us often throughout yeah. our career um even though some of those those views may no longer be in vogue shall we say. Well, it's just the challenge. I think it's really important the challenges. So then you then so you, your undergraduate work through to then your PhD work. Then, so what was your so the the PhD was where where was that? It? it was in the one of the greatest countries in
2: the world, I think.
0: It was in Scotland. Scotland, Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so in Edinburgh, you did your PhD in Edinburgh. Then, so tell us a bit about that
2: that's right so i did i did undergrad masters and phd in edinburgh so i did a philosophy and psychology degree initially joint honors one there and then did a master's by research and a, and a phd and that was all kind of particularly at postgrad level was more geared towards um, questions around autism i just happened to mm-hmm. I, I did an autism project as an undergrad dissertation with a great uh, researcher called maggie mcgonigal Chalmers, mm-hmm. uh and um and got really interested in questions around um, executive function and the interaction of language and cognition. So what role does language play in how we go about solving problems? How we uh, kind of what are, what's sometimes called kind of higher order or abstract kind of modes of thinking. Um, and really Edinburgh still, but particularly at the time, very, very based in cognitive neuropsychology. Mm. So you, you've got a really good grounding in um, experimental design and thinking about, you know, how do you contrast different cognitive processes? Um, and I was doing all this while thinking while well, I'm gathering, going to try and gather experience to eventually one day apply for clinical. And I haven't quite got around to that bit yet, but I did <laughs> end up doing a PhD and uh, and before you know it, you, you know, you become an academic researcher instead. So uh, but yeah, so that was kind of my trajectory through that. I always came in the back of my mind, keeping an eye on some of the more kind of adult mental health and psychosis yeah. related questions as well. So,
0: so, so your P, with your PhD or sorry in your master's and PhD were they both really related projects?
2: Yeah so I, I designed this task uh, in, in the master's project which produced some quite interesting results and essentially my PhD uh, picked up on that so the, um the master's project was trying to think if we think about autistic people having differing cognitive styles uh, and ways of solving problems How would you actually harness that and measure that in a task situation because there was lots of descriptive stuff around the time saying oh they just see the world in a different way or they kind Mm -hmm. of think differently but i was thinking well how do you you know how do we make sense of that cognitively and and i ended up adapting tasks that were essentially kind of um forms of the game guess who and 20 questions which might seem very very simple um but actually they're question they're they're tasks where Mm -hmm. you have to apply some quite complex semantic knowledge and strategic linguistic knowledge to narrow down, narrow down the possibilities, possibilities in front of you, um, okay. and and you can do things like you can manage the memory load because you can knock down all the things on a, on all that of sort of course, stuff. So of
0: course, of course. So yeah. you can
2: use it as this, particularly working with children and young people. You can use it as an accessible task, or actually you can do some quite fine-tuned cognitive experiments with it. Um, and uh, so I became the world expert in in Guess Who for a few years. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, and playing that with kids who at the time would have had an autism diagnosis or an Asperger diagnosis. This was all pre-2013. Yeah. Um, I also did some side projects and working with deaf children and adults because I was mm-hmm. really interested in what contribution does uh, having a kind of different path through life for language development and communicative development. What what's that contributing to? How do we use language in these contexts as well? So it was a pretty kind of broad PhD, yeah. even if it ended up on quite a specific focus, really.
0: But. Yeah. But so it's really fascinating. So did did it have a mental health angle at that stage or was it more a sort of basic science trying to understand the cognitions and the social communication element? Or were you look, linking that at that stage to mental health outcomes? <sighs>
2: Um, I wasn't, and in part that was because Edinburgh at the time didn't have a strong, uh, within the kind of the academic department, it it didn't do lots of mental health related stuff. There's one or two Mm -hmm. people who did a few things, but there wasn't loads of opportunity to do that then. But but I was beginning to get really interested in questions around um, uh, inner speech and kind of inner monologue uh and through that started to get in touch with a few different people at durham university including david williams who was working on autism and charles fernihoe who was working on air speech and thinking about applying it to questions around schizophrenia and psychosis so that's basically how i ended up at durham well that
0: was was my next question i'm trying how that link happened then okay so 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 then you went straight from from the ph was it straight from phd hmm to Durham then
2: it was the day after the viva I had to go straight to Durham and start my next job and I actually missed the train because I was in the pub too long in Edinburgh uh, <laughs> and had to get the Megabus home uh so it was it was an auspicious start but well, was... at least the Megabus is cheap so yeah that's true that's, that's true yeah yeah to, to
0: yeah keep in mind so when I remember then so you went to Durham that was 2012 was that right that's right yeah yeah and then so you did 10 years then working on the Was it so we employed on the hearing the voice project at that stage?
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it just started. So I was employed as the first psychology postdoc on that project. And it initially had three years of funding from the Wellcome Trust. So this was a project uh, that um, tried to explore the experience of hearing voices um, Mm. from many different perspectives. So, you know, from a a psychiatric or medical perspective, we might call them auditory verbal hallucinations. But, you know, if you look kind of uh, from a cultural perspective or historical perspective, this is an experience which um, can be interpreted in many different ways mm-hmm. uh, and that m- means it's a topic that's ripe for kind of interdisciplinary uh, exploration and um, so I, was, I joined a team that well the first round of postdocs it was me a philosopher and a historian um, but then you know a, a, the team as it grew had people from literary studies had anthropologists um, mm-hmm. had um, people from the medical humanities had theologians it was a really Broad group, and at its height, I think we had about twenty-four researchers wow. uh, hearing the voice. So, and that was that was welcome funded. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we got refunded in twenty fifteen mm-hmm. with a um, with the imaginatively titled "Hearing the Voice 2. Uh <laughs> and uh, um, and that kind of essentially was supposed to run till twenty twenty, but with COVID and other reasons, it, it was extended to twenty twenty two. So, um, so
0: what was what were the the aims of that? Was it to yeah? I mean, because I mean, it's pretty innovative. To bring together obviously that that cross or inter- interdisciplinary approach so if somebody said to you met you in a coffee shop and said oh i've been i spent 10 years mm-hmm. working on hearing the voice what what do
1: we know now that we didn't know then and also what does it mean to hear voices
2: well um to take the latter question first to hear voices in the absence of another speaker for some people uh, is a very distressing experience it can be something that's really startling disorienting they might feel like they can't tell anybody else that's happening and the things that the voice says might be really really disturbing and hard to um, handle often you know some voices are very very good at kind of expressing our worst fears picking up on our worst insecurities and i think i think for hearing voices that's what a lot of people would assume that this is primarily a a kind of really distressing experience and associated with diagnosis like schizophrenia but it doesn't have to be that way you you, even for people who have really distressing voices they might have some voices that are actually positive or supportive Um, on average if you look at studies when they've um, tried to explore this most people who regularly hear voices hear between three and four voices Mm -hmm. and those different voices might take on slightly different roles and interact between themselves in different ways. Uh, all of which is to say that there's a strong kind of interpersonal element in hearing voices that you have to explore when you're trying to support somebody who's having that experience, if they are finding it distressing. And that means it's a really complex phenomenon that goes beyond, you know, I think most people think hallucinations, they think, uh, this is a sensory phenomenon. It's just like mm-hmm. kind of hearing something, but it's not like hearing a tape recorder. It is more like being visited by someone or something. And to come back to your question, Rory, I think, you know, there are many different strands of hearing the voiceover over a decade of work. But one mm. key strand was really trying to explore what we call the phenomenology, that question of what is it like to have this experience? And is there something we might miss if we just stick with standardized approaches scales questions the things that you gather from a very quick assessment in 10 or 15 minutes versus the things that you might get to know about somebody's experience if you're given the luxury of more time or different kind of models of knowledge as well Um, and so as part of the project we all through it we regularly had um, people with lived experience of this phenomenon coming in, joining our team, joining in research discussions and meetings and talking to us about uh, those experiences. And often we're almost interested in kind of what's going on behind the voice to some degree. You know, is it just about what you can hear or what the voice says, or is it is it something else as well? Like, is it something about the voice's character? Is it something about how that interlinks to your own history? Is it something about um, tracking a voice over time that has a, um, you know, like a backstory and might even kind of come in different modalities in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing that you could say was a kind of a key, th- key finding or a, something that we really emphasized was this sense in which people used voice a lot of the time, not to refer to the thing that they're hearing, but almost as if it was a name to refer to this agent or entity that could appear in multiple forms. And it yeah. just happens to be that speaking is the main thing that you would the main thing you would interact with it. And sometimes people would say to us, you know what? They don't even need to speak. I know when they're there, I can feel it when they're there.
0: Um, So is that, because we'll come back to this when we move on mm -hmm. to your book, but is that part of the sort of your substrate for thinking then about felt presence type idea? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that strike me, I assume, or the question I suppose is, with the the interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. approach, did you look beyond, because the descriptions you just gave there were looking at hearing voices in the context of mental health, phenomena so did you look beyond that um in in non-clinical settings and historically because you mentioned the, his, the historical perspective i just suppose I, i'm just curious to know what because we in modern days so to speak have one particular interpretation of voices and for many people they're they're frightening but mm. what's the sort of historical narrative of that so i suppose is my question
2: well I mean, and i guess the the interpretations are going to vary across different historical periods and cultural frames and You've always got to be wary as well of trying to draw two direct comparisons across these different eras, like saying that this phenomenon or this experience is exactly the same. But what's interesting is looking at how people react and frame those experiences or make sense of them. So within our team, we have people who would look at medieval and early modern accounts of hearing voices. So Mm -hmm. um, early mystics like Marjorie Kemp and the kind of voices that she was Voices and visions that she was visited by. Some people who are interested in things like Joan of Arc, for example, and, yeah. and her um, kind of spiritual voices and the, the way they would inspire her um, going into battle. Um, but then other people who were uh, specialists, for example, in the Victorian period, looking at the emergence of spiritualism, uh, the role of the voice in in Mormonism. Uh, so you know, there's there's very specific emphasis in in mormon thinking about the direct voice of god giving you very specific instructions and those being things that you have to have to follow so adam Powell, within our team for example is a religious studies scholar who specialized in all that things have really stuck with me from that was uh, spiritualism and mormonism came from exactly the same very small district in upstate new york and happened to end up in very different places in the country no. but there was that like kind of hotbed of uh new thinking in the early 19th century uh, for for these sorts of um new religious groups i think we what we tended to do was look at these different periods to explore where and how voices get interpreted and get used and fit into new belief frameworks but the i guess the perhaps more relevant to that question of all how do we think about voices today is to look at just the variety you get outside of that clinical context so one of the things that i worked on in particular was this idea of non-clinical voice hearing or people who regularly heard voices without finding them distressing without anger Using mental health services. And uh, in one particular study, I went around the country trying to find people who were having this phenomenon, you know, kind of every day. And then to see if they would be willing to come and do a, we did a scanning study study down yeah. in London with Sophie Scott, where we played them these strange, illusory sounds called sine wave speech. And we didn't tell them what they're supposed to be looking for. We told them this was a st- particular experiment about attention when they're in the scanner. And the interesting thing about these sounds is you can't usually understand them um, unless you've already been told that it's speech, or even played some of the examples of the actual things to listen out for. But the people that we, we recruit for this study could decode this, these sounds spontaneously, seemingly, um, and uh, wow. and we could add we because we we're scanning at the same time we could show that their brains were responding in a slightly different way in in uh, given these kind of quite ambiguous and hidden stimuli. So, so how did you
0: interpret? How could they make sense of it? <laughs>
2: Well, um, I guess that these stimuli are are kind of classic stimuli that we would think about in terms of top-down perception. They rely on that extra bit of top-down knowledge to decode the puzzle or decode the pattern. And if you look at, you know, more contemporary ideas around predictive coding or predictive processing that are very in vogue at the moment, that's all about, you know, that that top-down element actually driving a lot of our perception unless we get enough evidence that we need to kind of row back on it and and gather Mm -hmm. something new. So one theory is that for people who are regularly having unusual experiences or we can consider hallucinations, their seesaw is a bit more tipped towards the top down which means given certain ambiguous situations, they're going to be quicker to draw upon this prior knowledge, this top-down knowledge. And you, there's evidence of that uh, in the visual and auditory domain in psychosis. There's evidence of that in Parkinson's as well, um, for yeah. the kind of hallucinations that occur in Parkinson's. So it's a, it's an interesting idea that actually, if you put people in the right situation, you can start to see these sorts of top-down effects appear for people who are much more susceptible to unusual experiences.
0: Uh, uh, somebody on the street asks, "So, well, what's the function of hearing voices. And I know there's no one answer, of course, but, mm-hmm. but but what would you say? Well, what is it? Because they're obviously functional. So what, what's, the, what's the function of them? What How did, from an evolutionary perspective then, how did they evolve?
2: Well, I mean, I think you could pose a few different answers or theories for that. But one main one would be that clearly many of us have this capacity to have really quite vivid dialogues or conversations in our heads it's not the case that everybody does this so a big strand of research that myself and Charles Fernieho the lead of the hearing the voice project did was trying to explore the individual variability in what we term inner speech and some people really endorse having these elaborate dialogues and conversations Mm -hmm. and uh, and other people don't Um, and one of the kind of really classic or dominant theory of where hearing voices comes from through the 90s and 2000s was usually attributed to Chris Frith, mm-hmm. was that what we do is we monitor our own inner speech, and this can break down sometimes. So it's possible that people who are hearing voices are actually not recognizing their own inner speech. And that theory has its pros and cons, but it's a very influential theory. But if we go back to that sense of um, inner speech containing dialogues, complaining, containing really in- complex interactions potentially, and one idea is that that's essentially a, an evolutionary byproduct of um, our capacity to plan in our heads for speech processes Mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, it seems like certain aspects of speech imagery are part of the speech motor process. Essentially, they're kind of byproducts of the way we get our speech muscles ready to say the right things at the right times. So um, we cover this a bit and we wrote a review in 2015 on Inner Speech for Psych Bulletin. And there are these one or two evolutionary theories, essentially almost Inner Speech is this thing that emerged from um, our capacity for language more generally. And then it's possible that that has gone in many different, unusual directions as well.
1: I was thinking with the inner speech, because I know if like some like cultures, I guess what we would probably call like hallucinations and stuff is attributed to different things because mm. I know like like my older generation of my family was to say something like I, I was going to do something, but I had a thought like, it's like God was telling me to do something else. Mm-hmm. Would that be part of that inner speech?
2: It could be, I mean, I would, would I'd stop short of suggesting that we should interpret it that way because obviously saying it's in a speech would be our own cultural interpretation and, and it would be setting up a kind of hierarchy of knowledge there. So sometimes when people talk about the voice of God speaking to them they would distinguish that from say their own thoughts or their own inner speech because they would say look it's got this distinct feeling of knowledge that I couldn't have or it's coming from this this entity that somehow goes beyond them. They wouldn't necessarily have to say oh, I definitely know it sounds like God, or it's got God's voice, but they might have this slightly unknowable sense of this is something that goes beyond me and a knowledge or an entity that goes beyond me. Um, and Tanya Lerman, a cultural anthropologist at Stanford, who we've done a bit of work with in the past, has written extensively on this. She had one book, book called When God Talks Back. And more recently, she's kind of covered work on how might, people might try and cultivate um, it, that sort of experience within a spiritual context. Um, but, th- I mean, that those sorts of things were some of the things that we wanted to explore as part of Hearing the Voice as well. And, for example, in 2020, we had a paper about um, people within kind of fairly mainstream and UK-based Christian faiths and their experience of the voice of God and how they might contrast that with other experiences of, you know, uh, inner speech or their own thought or even kind of quite unusual hallucinatory experiences. I think, you know, sometimes with one thing i would say about that sort of voice of god account is very often it's a it might be just one sentence very very specific a kind of instruction that you immediately know this is what i need to do it might kind of compel uh, action and that might be quite different from some of the kind of running commentary stuff you get in some of the more distressing voices um, that people describe for example in psychosis where it's it's like somebody in your ear or somebody in your shoulder over and over again as opposed mm-hmm. to You know, often something spiritually significant, it's, you know, it's a, it's a mic drop. It's a bam. This is what you need to do, you know, so, um, but you have to be very careful with any of these comparisons, really. Um, Yeah.
0: Well, I think that sort of sets us up for moving the sort of conversation on a bit away from your direct research, I suppose, from, well, obviously, I'm I'm not saying the book's not direct research, but your book is obviously trying to do something different. And so Ben has written a book entitled Presence, I'll give the full title, Presence. The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. And I've been fortunate enough to obviously have a quick scan of a, the, a proof copy. And it really is genuinely fascinating, and So and really accessible. What I've read so far is really is really accessible. I think it would be of interest to such a wide audience. So maybe could you tell us, because we, we touched on this idea of felt presence um, earlier in the podcast, but maybe could you tell us a bit about what drew you to do the book? And it's and I love the I mean the the intro bit or the preface bit on which obviously talks about and I didn't know the William James stuff actually mm-hmm. so it was really interesting for me as a psychologist going back to obviously whatever our founder or whatever we wanted to describe William James but can you tell us a bit about what brought you to do the book and what you're what you're hoping the book book will do I suppose those two questions
2: of course yeah yeah so uh, so as I said through that work with hearing the voice. Um we were really interested in what was going on kind of behind the voice. And there was this sense for some people that voices had presence, a presence that could be there even when they weren't speaking. Um, And that was something that was hard to get your head round. If you thought about things just in terms of the existing psychological models of the time, Um, like, for example, if we thought it was our own thoughts or in a speech that we'd misattributed, why would you feel like there was someone there with you, Mm. a kind of silent figure? How would that even fit? And this got our whole team really thinking in lots of different directions, but uh, um, the the kind of the the rabbit warren that I went down um, was to think more and more about, well, what is this thing that we might call presence? And where does it appear? What does it um, look like for want of a better word? Um, And it is a phenomenon that's been studied in lots lots of different Mm -hmm. contexts. So to provide a a very brief brief definition, it's that feeling of someone um, being there in the close kind of surroundings you have no clear sensory evidence as to why you're having that feeling so you can't hear them you can't see them you can't touch them but you just feel with all your being that somebody is there and and this happens in, in psychosis happens in parkinson's it happens in survival situations it happens uh, in context of like grief and bereavement and it can happen in things like sleep paralysis too and mm-hmm. um, once you start looking it's it's almost everywhere <laughs> yeah um, i say almost because it's still a very unusual phenomenon and people find it really hard to talk about um hard to describe um but um but from that i just thought we started to do more and more work that went in that direction and it got to the point where i thought well actually there's enough here to tell hopefully quite a kind of rounded or comprehensive story about all the different ways in which this phenomenon seems to occur and start to work towards some understanding of well where could it come from how is it possible and what does it really mean for how we Mm -hmm. understand uh, ourselves and, and the kind of human condition and and where this goes i mean it's hard to tell obviously having written a book it's only just now that you start to get some of the responses through and it's it's lovely that, you, that you're finding it really interesting but from my own experience what often happens say for example if you start talking about voices is that people contact you and people go i've had that or i've had this but something slightly different yeah and that is already starting to happen with presence a bit as well loads of people have had it and they don't really talk about it um, but it's it's actually I think it's fairly common.
0: Well that, that was my that was one of the questions I had was do we know how common it is? Has there been a large scale, I mean a decent large scale survey which really quantifies this? And then obviously never mind the quality of understanding
1: it. Because I was getting nervous because I've experienced this. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. It's uh so the short answer is we don't really know, but mm-hmm. there is emerging evidence that gives us a bit of a clue. There was a large study uh, run by team in Croningen as part of Iris lab there. Iris is I kind of one of the world's foremost hallucinations researchers um, and researcher in her team, uh, Marsha Linson, published a study that had um, over 10,000 people um, mm-hmm. surveyed for their uh, proneness to uh, hallucinatory experiences or hallucination like experiences in the general population. And people could report if they'd ever had these sorts of presence experiences in one subset of this questionnaire and about 1.5% of that overall sample reported spontaneously these presence experiences. So to put that into context, we often say that um, hearing voices affects around kind of 5 to 15% of adults in their lifetime. We say we give that range because actually the estimates really, really vary depending on how you measure this. So that's one study saying 1.5%. But actually, if you look at, for example, a very specific context like sleep paralysis, about 7% of adults uh, have sleep paralysis at some point in their lives. And about half of those will have hallucinatory experiences and the most common hallucinatory experience is felt presence on its own it's not hearing things it's not seeing things it's the sense of a malevolent presence in the room Mm -hmm. with them so if we imagine that you know that that just from that statistic it could actually be two to three percent of adults will have had this experience specifically and related to sleep and when you add up all the other contexts in which it could occur as well I suspect the estimate will go a little bit higher I'd be surprised if it was over 10 percent, but I wouldn't be surprised if you know in a few years time with a few high quality studies we could Mm -hmm. actually say something like five or six percent it's the most common type of unusual sensory experience in bereavement, more so than voices yeah, or visions yeah. as well
0: Craig you were saying you you've you've
1: had this experience so oh, by but we, let's see what yours is if you want, want to share it I don't know like it's like this is, doesn't happen to me often I think it's what you're saying about like a bit of, like psychosis I started getting a bit nervous thinking like uh, is there something wrong no but I've like felt it like behind me but mm-hmm. not necessarily about like um that person's particularly that close. But like in the room somewhere, is is presence the similar thing to like feeling like someone's watching you? And then you turn around and it's like oh, actually there's nothing going on.
2: That's a that's a good question. A lot of people feel like there's similarities between the two phenomena. Strictly, they're separate, and I would say that for quite a few people who've had have feelings of presence, they might also describe the feeling of being watched, and sometimes that overlaps with feelings of paranoia as well. So mm-hmm. we've we've done research. We've shown that in some samples paranoia is quite a strong predictor of feelings of of presence but strictly these things can happen even without the feeling of being watched and um sometimes the presence isn't watching you or doesn't pay any attention to you whatsoever it can just be the feeling that something is there almost it's kind of very basic location but it is it's funny you should say behind you is most commonly it's just behind you Mm. uh, or kind of almost in your peripersonal space, you know, uh, it's kind of it could be looking over your shoulder a little bit. Um, but it I mean, I guess so I'm used to saying things that are saying these things are kind of similar to what might happen in psychosis. But I don't see that as a thing where that people should feel concerned about it. Actually, what it says shows is this is these things are on a spectrum. Right. And they can mm-hmm. happen in many, many different ways. And they might all be united by similar mechanisms or similar functions. But it's often other things making the difference as to whether it's something that's problematic. You know, some presences just feel really malevolent. Some
1: mm-hmm. presences
2: might be related to people's past experiences or past trauma. And those are the sorts of things that are likely to, you know, warrant clinical concern. It's not the, it's not the phenomenon itself, if that makes sense. You know, unusual things happen all the time to people.
0: I suppose because that's, the question I was going to ask was, to what extent is this related or can it be related to trauma independently of mental health? Problems. I'm just thinking that the ones I've had when I have me is were associated with two bereavements. When my mm-hmm. father died, when I when I was in my early twenties, and I remember then I would it was it was linked to sleep paralysis. So. <clears> though. <throat> and I also had but but the one and then once another close friend died by suicide, I also had these um, experiences. But the, And I can understand those in a way because in my head, the way i would made sense of them was of those people were trying to tell me they were OK mm-hmm. and for me not to be worried. But the odd one was when I was at university in Belfast, at Queens in Belfast, and the reason for highlighting that, because there's, I'll come back to that in a second, is I used to, in first year in halls, I used to have this sleep paralysis dream where this woman was coming into my room. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in any way... It, 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 that sounds worse than what it meant. it <laughs> wasn't like that at all. But it was quite but I but I, I was quite frightened by it. It really frightened me. So I so I couldn't I could never make sense of that one. And, and, and so be interested in your view of that, Ben, because then many, many years later, I've just listened to a podcast. There's a podcast, I can't remember what's it's called, it's on the BBC or it's on sounds. And it's the, Uncanny? Uncanny. Yeah, Danny Robinson. Uncanny. As well. yeah, yeah. Taught, it was a different halls of residence. Yeah. But the guy talks about there's several people talk about the, the felt presence there and the malevolent stuff. So so that's why. So I'm just curious on what like I, so again I always try and find what's the function of these things. And yeah. So so I want your I want you to explain my first year at university, please.
2: So so first of all, um, sleep paralysis is really common among students. So you see some some papers where they go, oh, it could happen to up to one third of adults, and usually it's student samples. <laughs> you get that as high rates because you know you're much more likely to get paralysis if you've got disruptions to your own sleep if you're burning the candle at both ends if you're indulging in certain substances i don't want to cast any aspersions here Rory, but <laughs> um but it's but it, it 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 happens a lot to young people and a lot to students the thing with sleep paralysis um is that it, the presences that occur there it's almost like a crossroads for two or three different theories and provides a really good place to think about try and tease apart or well, what's really going on here and some people say well you know you're waking up you're paralyzed and um, you must be frightened of being paralyzed and um, from an evolutionary perspective if you're paralyzed then the worst thing that could happen is prey could be after you and so mm-hmm. essentially all of this is almost like this kind of cognitive unpacking of a very early evolutionary thing that you are you are vulnerable and therefore something malevolent must be here but not not all sleep paralysis presences are actually evil, even though lots of them really feel like that. But the other key thing about sleep paralysis is your usual cues as to where your body should be in space and your control over your muscles is clearly disrupted. Yeah, And we know from other evidence, whether it's um, brain injury, whether it's direct stimulation of the brain, um, whether it's just particular experiments that manipulate our sense of bodily self-consciousness. If you change ha- our own sense of where our bodies are in space, it's very easy to induce very unusual or hallucinatory like phenomena including feelings of presence Like if we're not getting our usual cues about where our bodies should be then it's almost as if we start experiencing bodies out there in other places where they shouldn't be sometimes bodies in exactly the same position as us and that's the first part of the book really focuses on that as one of the first answers is how is presence possible is actually you can provide a kind of body theory of presence where it's essentially It feels like there's no sensory content as to why a presence is there, but actually it's more like a disruption to our our sense of proprioception, our sense of our own kind of body maps um, as to why it's created. So with something like sleep paralysis, it's probably two things. It's probably some of that kind of secondary interpretation of what's going on, interpretation of your own arousal and fear, but underlying that something which is driving a very kind of embodied perception because of the change to your own
0: body well well that's that's been really helpful and reassured me thank you <laughs> um, but early on in the book as well i think you also you've a great section when you're talking about endurance mm-hmm. and the voyage and stuff and so and you want maybe tell us a bit about about that because that's well, well, do you tell us what you tell what you tell the reader about endurance in the book?
2: So this was this is the story of Shackleton's uh, endurance expedition in, in 1914 um, that was an attempt to reach the South Pole and they, and they never reached there because essentially got they got stuck in the ice in the Weddell Sea and the um, after many months of the boat getting stuck, eventually they had to abandon the boat and then they, the whole crew had to drag lifeboats across the ice. Then they had a, a real hair-raising journey um, across the sea, eventually culminating in essentially six men taking an open boat across I think about 800 miles of the Southern Ocean to get to South Georgia. And then to cap it all at the end of it, Shackleton and two of his, um, the men of his crew, uh, Frank Worsley and Tom Crean, have to cover the middle of South Georgia Island to get to Stromness, the whaling station, because mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the crew are kind of dotted behind them and, and they'll die essentially if they get no help to them. So they have to trek across this island, it takes 36 hours, they've, they've barely got anything, they've got an ice axe, and they've got some rope, and that's it. Um, and, uh, but they make it, somehow they make it, and just as they make it, the, uh, a massive storm rolls in. So it literally would have been, if they'd taken like half an hour longer, they would have, they would have died, and probably the rest of the crew would have died as well. But the famous thing uh, that happened there was that uh, all three men uh, afterwards described themselves as being accompanied by a fourth companion. Yeah. Um. Uh. And um. But they were also quite reticent to really say much more about who or what that fourth companion was. <laughs> so Worsley and Shackleton referred to it as Providence. Uh, Crean almost never spoke about it, but apparently told some friends in the pub that the Lord had saved them. And um. But the Shackletons on record saying, you know, there are some things which can never be spoken of, and and they all had had this feeling that that somehow again went beyond them that they mm-hmm. they that they couldn't really describe and that was really like the the that was the the archetypal case that led to this whole genre of presence experiences in the context of of survival and um, near death um, experiences they became known as the third man factor because when t s Eliot referred to this event in uh, the poem the wasteland he talked of he He'd heard about Shackleton's example, but he referred to the third man as opposed to the fourth. Mm-hmm. So curiously, the origin story is actually about four men, but but we know it as the third man factor. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's really well known among mountaineers, among climbers. There's loads of different examples of it, of this kind of being visited by something often that kind of gets you over the line, wakes you up from a tent where if you'd fallen asleep you would have died. Uh, lots of you know just in the nick of time. Um, phenomena. Although, you know, the flip side of that is it's literal survivor bias. What about, you know, if, if there was a bunch of evil malevolent presences out there pushing people off mountains and cliffs and things like that, then uh, we wouldn't know. So yeah. so you always have to be wary of, you know, the myth and the legend and the influence of kind of the stories that you do get to hear versus the stories that you don't.
0: Yeah, because what I love about what, you, what you've done with the book is because you combine, you have got great literally narratives, obviously, and you're combining that with narratives from people like as well. I, I think I remember seeing somebody from Glasgow University, a student from Glasgow University, I think is one of his story, one of the narratives, but also bringing it with the science and obviously you draw on the neuroscience stuff and the limbic system and feedback loops and so on. So I really um, encourage anybody who's really interested in this. I think it's fascinating how, I just love how what, what just bringing together that, that genuine inter- interdisciplinarity in a way. Which is this, what well, it's not a universal phenomenon, but we're talking about percentages or frequencies, pretty common phenomenon. So then just to try and bring the, the bit of the discussion about the book to a close, and then we've a couple of last questions for you, Ben, just is so but what are you hoping? So what are you hoping to do? You've or what do you hope the book will do? Is it raise awareness? Is it to help people? What's what are you hoping?
2: Well, um, I think both of those things hopefully could happen. First of all, it'd just be good to start some conversations about this experience and to put a name to it for some people who've had it before and might find it quite unsettling. For example, the people who I've met with psychosis who have this experience, they've literally said to me, I don't even try and describe this in the clinic. You know, they're happy talking about voices, they're happy talking about you know very strong and unusual beliefs, but the stuff about the invisible people, it feels like that somehow goes beyond the pale um and and uh it but it's important Uh, and actually so for example um nev jones and sharon Pagden in the us as part of a grassroots movement have published this thing psychosis outside the box which is a call to arms for people to pay more attention researchers and clinicians to pay more attention to Really hard to describe an unusual phenomena in psychosis. So it's, you know, it's not just all about voices. It's about mm-hmm. changes in how people perceive time and perceive themselves, but also felt presence. Felt presence is one of the things they specifically name. So this is something that I think um, we need to get a handle on, and it'd be great if we had better clinical understanding of. And because I think there are people out there who who will be struggling with it and and can't even get to the point where they're describing it to somebody else.
0: Yeah, because actually this is maybe a bit left field, but what struck me when I was reading it was. So sort of remind me a bit of, are you familiar with the, the book Awe, The tr- Transformative Power of oh, yeah, yeah. Everyday Wonder by whatever, I think it's Dasher Keltner. I don't know if I pronounced his first name correct. But it struck me as the same idea, which is awe is this thing we all have some understanding of, but actually we've not harnessed it or understood mm-hmm. it fully. And, and it so struck me as the same, whereas this is something we all have an intuitive understanding of and, experience, and different, differentially a different experience of. But actually there's maybe we need more research, we need more understanding of it to maybe harness its power um for both um uh, for hopefully for for the for positivity. Okay, so last couple of things, just if that's okay, Ben, is sure just before we put a couple of sort of final throwaway quickfire type questions at the very end. But I just want to be just curious. Given this is a, obviously a mental health research podcast and given obviously your work, obviously spans basic science, obviously intervention based work. I know you do as well. And you're looking at people with, in terms of the neurodevelopmental context as well. But if somebody said, Jay, what are you, what are the key, what is the key priority we should be focusing on in terms of mental health research? What would you suggest? What would you like to see us focusing on as a community?
2: As a community, gosh, well, that is a it's a real million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think from a from a basic science perspective, there's still fundamentally this question of, you know, what what is psychosis? Not from a definitional level, but for, you know, why would our minds have this sort of response or reaction in the in the the direction of the senses or our beliefs that would lead to these extreme states? Because psychosis is something that happens all around us. you know, through many, many different conditions as well, can lead to those states of like losing grip of reality. But I think um, in terms of to step away from the basic science, really the kind of the focus for research also needs to be on how can we take into account a plurality of ideas and interpretations about these experiences? How can we draw upon the power of lived experience in an equitable way to really enhance our understanding of that phenomena? And I think we still have in large part uh, a system of research and of commissioning and of treatment development, which is still fairly top down um, and isn't isn't great at harnessing that that kind of wisdom and that and that power. Mm. Um, so I think I think that's the big challenge. Um, so I'm aware that I've given you two two answers: basic well, <laughs> science and a, and more of a really a policy answer. But I think uh, you know I think that's where the field's gonna gonna need to go uh, mm. really. And there yeah. are some steps towards it, but it's it's hard to do. Um, so yeah.
0: No, great, great. Well, so just the last, the two quick fires in, and then we'll let let you go, Ben, is reflecting on what you know now over some years later, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? I know it's a bit unfair.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, other than definitely take the psychology A-level, I think probably and personally it would be something about you're not not necessarily in control all the time of your own mental experience. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, try and be ready for that too. Yeah, I think that's a great. I don't think we've had anything like that
0: actually. I think it's a really important one. And then the last one, then Ben, is if you had the option of having a coffee or dinner with two people, either living or dead, for a really fascinating conversation, can you think who would be top of your list?
2: Oh well, I guess it would have to be Lang.
0: Well, we started with Lang, didn't we? Yeah. We started with Lang
2: and we come full circle yeah i mean it might be i don't know if you'd want to go for a coffee uh but um i and it might get a bit hairy but i think i think that'd be a pretty interesting conversation
0: yeah okay great anybody else
2: do you want to come uh oh yeah well i mean lots lots of different um heroes really for for this sort of research and i'm i've had the um I've had the kind of golden opportunity over the past ten years to work directly with people who I think are like fascinating and mm. and brilliant uh, people in their field. So I'm lucky that I don't really have to. I don't really have to imagine it too much. I've I've met a number of my research heroes already, and uh, um, and really enjoy working with them. So yeah. Okay.
0: Well, no, that's great. No, I think I like that. It's a very magnanimous and <laughs> inclusive answer to that last question. Um. So it just remains for Craig and I. Just obviously huge thanks. That was a fascinating conversation and covering both obviously the basic science application mental health but also that importance of there's no there's no one discipline or one group of people have all the answers and it's bringing that together but at the heart of it has to be lived experience and i think the the felt presence stuff is really clearly at the heart of that as well and just to um, really encourage those who are interested please go and buy Ben's book presence is available now isn't it
2: yeah uh, no Mar- March 21st
0: it's available uh, March 21st is available March 21st so I d- wasn't quite certain if it was out yet yeah no, I only had the proof copy. so soon. March 21st but I assume you can pre-order
2: it you can pre-order it via Waterstones or Manchester Uni Press the publishers uh there's an audio book you can pre-order there's a launch in Durham on March 21st as well so um yeah excellent
0: excellent well Thanks a million, Ben, and, and the very best. Hope the book does really well and all, all the very best.
1: Cheers.
2: Thank you very much, Roy. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organisation that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.